Good morning, Rio. All right, so I, my name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I am the pastor of education here at Rio. And uh, it's my great privilege and delight to be able to come before you and preach on our 10th week of this series that we're going through in 1 Kings and the beginning of 2 Kings that's called Desiring the Kingdom. And in today's passage, which covers 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, we come to the end of the king that we've been looking at since we started this series. We come to the death of King Solomon, of the death of King Solomon. And so today, um, I get to cover a little bit of a eulogy for King Solomon. No person at the time that King Solomon lived had more power, more wisdom, more wealth or more fame, and yet he ends his life as a pretty extreme disappointment. Now, as a pastor, I've given eulogies before. (laughs) Not one like this, where you're pointing out that somebody who was so blessed comes to the end of his life in a crash and burn scenario. No figure of the Old Testament since Adam and Eve had higher expectations thrust upon him in his life. And I want to do a quick, so we understand this, like when Solomon comes around, people are not saying, oh great, we have a new king. They're asking the question, is this the one who's going to rescue the world? Is this the Messiah, the Savior? And all the story prior to chapter 11 is hinting, is he the one? Go back to the very beginning of Scripture, and let's walk through this a little bit, because if you go back to the beginning of Scripture, the gospel is first given immediately after Adam and Eve fall. And in Genesis chapter 3, God comes and pronounces a judgment upon the serpent. Hang with me here. He says, I will put enmity, animosity, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. In other words, she's going to have a child. Some woman is going to have a child, and he will crush your head, Satan. He's going to crush your head, serpent. The one who brings about death and misery and is the embodiment of all that's evil is going to be destroyed by this man who's born of a woman. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God gives this promise in Genesis 3, and for the entirety of the Old Testament, we got to remember this. They're left asking the question, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be that that stomps the head of the enemy that establishes this kingdom of righteousness It's not going to be Adam. Adam falls colossally. God gives all these covenants to Adam, and it's not him. And then you fast forward a little while, and you get this awesome guy named Noah who comes along. And man, he looks like he might be the savior of the world. He does things that are amazing. God shows unbelievable faithfulness to him, and he crashes. Fast forward a few chapters, and a guy named Abraham comes along. Well, this guy the father of the faith, God comes, pours another covenant on him. 
I'm going to do amazing things through you, Abraham. Through you, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Not Abraham. Jacob. Oh, I got another covenant for you, Jacob. Judah. You like the sound effects? You get the idea. God is saying, I'm going to bring about a redeemer. And all the world is left going, is it him? Okay, it's not Adam. Is it going to be one of Noah's kids? No, not there. Okay, God's narrowing it down, and now it's going to come through Abraham. And oh my goodness, now it's going to come through Jacob and the nation of Israel. And then it's going to come through Judah, his son. The Messianic line is going to come through him. Where is it going to be? So then you get to the birth of Solomon. And Scripture is very intentional at the way that it starts lifting him up. I mean, you get the impression that if you lived during that time, take we know how the story ends. Enter into the story. Imagine that you're longing for the Savior who's going to come and stomp the serpent's head. And the first introduction of this new king that's on the way is found when someone else is trying to steal his throne and incidentally is trying to do it at a place called the Serpent Stone. And what does Solomon do? He does what Adam didn't. He executes him. He puts him down. You fast forward and think about the language of Adam, right? The language that God gives in Genesis 3. And pay close attention. When Solomon is talking about his reign and how he's been established, he says this in 1 Kings chapter 5. He says, David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare which his enemies surrounded him. Until what? Until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. And so under this new kingdom that Solomon is inheriting, guess what? We read that the Lord had placed the enemies under his feet. This new king that's coming along for the first time since the Garden of Eden is going to be charged with God, charged by God, to build a place where the Lord is going to dwell permanently on this earth among the people. Oh my goodness, is Eden coming back? Could it be him? When Adam and Eve were created, they were tasked with being fruitful and multiplying a number. When Solomon comes around, 1 Kings 3 tells us Solomon's words. Solomon said, and your servant is in the midst of your people, God, whom you have chosen a great people too many to be numbered and counted for multitude. Check. Solomon seems to have fulfilled Adam's mandate. Adam wasn't only commanded to be fruitful and to multiply, he's also commanded to have dominion, right? Over all living creatures, plants, beasts of the earth, reptiles, birds, and fish. And when Solomon describes his daily provision, which includes all these things, the Bible then summarizes it by saying in 1 Kings 4, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates and the Chipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And so Solomon 
lands at a time where they've been fruitful, they've multiplied, and here comes a king who has dominion. Could he be the Messiah? And you go further later in the same passage, we see Solomon, that he exercises dominion over all the creatures that are highlighted in Genesis 1. He spoke of trees and plants from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows in the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. Gee, this sounds familiar. He's perfecting everything that Adam botched. He is taking dominion over the creation. And as a messianic candidate, he's checking lots of boxes. So the next great covenant after Adam comes with Noah. Do you know that when Noah was born, his father Lamech names him Noah, saying this, Oh, Perhaps he will be the one who gives us rest from painful toil. Who do you think Lamech was hoping his son would be? Maybe he'll be the Messiah. And I'm going to name him Noah, which in Hebrew literally means rest. Can we please just find rest? And so Solomon comes along, and in 1 Kings 5, we're told this, out of Solomon's mouth. But now the Lord, my God, has given me, Noah, rest on every side. And there is neither adversary. You know what that word adversary is in the Hebrew? Satan, Satan. There is no more adversary or misfortune. Everything is turning right. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God to come here and dwell, to reestablish this idea of Eden here in the midst of his people. And so Solomon gives them rest. There's no more Satan. Sounds like a good messianic candidate. Then comes Abraham's covenant. And what does God say to Abraham? Among other things, I am going to bless you like you wouldn't believe. Your descendants, even though your wife is barren, they're going to be like the stars of the sky, like the sands of the seashore, Abraham. And 1 Kings 4 tells us the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as what? As the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank. Oh, they were happy. Could it be him? And you continue on the promises God makes to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation that's going to be a blessing to all nations. Imagine what it would have been like to hear Hiram, the king of one of those foreign nations of Tyre, come in and out of his mouth comes, oh my goodness, God has blessed you to make this great nation. Imagine what the Israelites were thinking. Remember the covenant with Abraham is all nations are going to be blessed through your descendants. And here comes Solomon and all the nations are coming to him. All the nations are coming and being blessed by his incredible wisdom. Indeed, Solomon is blessing the nations. Could it be him? So after Abraham and Isaac, you get to Jacob. And Jacob, before he dies, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which is the nation of Israel, right? And he's looking at his 12 sons who will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And he begins giving blessings. And you know what he says to Judah? He says, the scepter, what the king holds, 
shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of peoples. Hmm. Solomon belongs to which tribe? Judah. Does Solomon receive tributes? <laughs> Lots of them. Are the nations around him obedient? Yeah. First Kings describes it. And Jacob adds, Judah is crouched as a lion and a lioness who dares rouse him. He's a lion. And when Solomon decorates his throne room, he does not want to give any confusion about what he represents. This is a picture of what Solomon's throne room would have looked like. And when it's described, guess what's put everywhere? Lion, lion, lion on every one of the steps. Lions on the side of his throne. Lions everywhere. When you walk into his throne room, And you see lions, there's no accident. He is representing the fulfillment, seemingly, of what was promised to Judah. And so this is the most precious promise given to Solomon. It comes to his father, David. See, David had warred against all these nations and had shed so many nations of blood. And God comes and says, you've shed too much blood. You can't build my temple. And the reason for that, pretty beautiful actually, is he's like, this temple is for all nations. So I don't want someone who has shed blood from those nations building it. I want a man of peace to build my temple. And so he says, your son, not yet born, shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whoa. I will be, this is God speaking. I will be to him, to Solomon, a father, and he shall be to me a son. Wow. Sounds awful messianic. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Get this and remember this. But, My steadfast love will not depart from him. So let me get this straight. He he seems to be fulfilling all these requirements. He's invited him to build a temple on earth. And God has looked at him and says, no matter what, my love never departs from you. You're my son. That will be the most precious verse in all of Solomon's life. By the end of the passage today, we're tempted to say, was he even saved? Are we going to see this guy in heaven? The way he finishes? My steadfast love will not depart from him. And so Solomon comes and he's born. And it says, she, Bathsheba, gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon, which comes from shalom. It literally means peace. Oh, and the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through the prophet Nathan to name him Jedidiah. It's the Lord's personal name for Solomon. And that word Jedidiah in the Hebrew literally means beloved of the Lord. That's a cool name. (laughs) That's a precious name. Beloved of the Lord. And so of all these descriptions, this passage is the most precious. 
And we'll understand why it's the most precious when we come to the end of his life. And so when Solomon is going to be made king, let's just jump in. And he goes before the Lord and he's this young guy and he's about to inherit the throne of his father David. And what does he say? He's overwhelmed. I have no business being king. Do you know who I am, God? Like, I have no business with this office. I'm so broken. I'm, I'm so weak. I can't do it. And he says, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant. Hear that humility. You've made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I don't even know how to go out or come in. Like, I have no business being king. And you know what? This moment is the healthiest moment of Solomon's kingdom. When he's humble enough to recognize, I have no business or right to be king of your kingdom. So he goes on when God says, what would you like? Of all things you could ask for, what do you like? He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Do you get what's going on here? What did Adam want? He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he wanted to be like God. And here comes Solomon saying, I don't want to be saturated with good and evil. I don't want to know all about good and evil. I want to be able to discern good and evil so that I can please you, God. And God hears that kind of humility. And I mean, you can almost imagine God going, oh, what you could do for my kingdom in this world with that kind of humility. Seeking to please me, recognizing that you have no place to be king. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm going to overwhelm you with blessing, Solomon. With that kind of humility, you not only get wisdom. Oh, here it comes. Unimaginable wealth. Unimaginable power. Fame to all the nations. Oh, my goodness. With that kind of humility, I'm going to bless your socks off. But there's something wrong. Solomon's like you and me. We're sinners. We're self-absorbed. And the moment God gives us a blessing, what do we do with it? Mine. And I want more of it. You give me wealth, I'll make it my life's mission to get more. You give me power, I'll make it my life's mission to get more. You give me fame, I'll make it my life's mission to get more for me right? And ironically, these blessings corrupt him. As king, we need to, and you read this in the next couple chapters, as God is just pouring blessing upon blessing, what happens? Solomon amasses personal wealth, massive amounts of gold and silver against the commands of God as king. He builds entire cities for horses and chariots against the commands of God for the king. He gives his inner circle neat little privileges. You don't have to pay taxes and you can be on a government pension. I'll provide your every need. You'll all be wealthy because you're my inner circle. But those that are far off and powerless, neglected. He builds his palace four times bigger 
than God's temple. He exploits God's wisdom for personal gain. When the nations come to him and they hear, we hear that God has blessed you mightily, he says, pay up. He neglects the powerless. He reduces his own people, we read, into forced labor to carry out his projects. He lives for himself. The man only drinks from golden cups. Yeah. And so when we get to 1 Kings chapter 11, we might have read by all that stuff, but the humble Solomon of chapter 3 is long gone. Long gone. And so in the final chapter of his life, we see Solomon now openly defying God's commands, betraying God overtly with all this fame and power. Could you imagine what he could have done with all that money, what he could have done for God's kingdom, with all that fame and power? What could he have done if he'd have said, God, I'm all yours. It's all for you. But instead, your blessing, mine. So you get to chapter 11, and you read about this one to whom, and I want you to remember this as we read every one of these lines, the one to whom God says, my steadfast love will never depart from you. You're my Jedediah, my beloved. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women against the command of God, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, the Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them because they worship pagan gods. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. God's not opposed to foreigners. He doesn't want them chasing after pagan gods. Oh, but Solomon clung to those in love. He had, get this, 700 wives. So this isn't like a slip up with that commandment. (laughs) Whoops. 700 wives who were princesses, which means that he's entering into these marriages to form political alliances, which means what for the institution of marriage, Solomon? You're reducing it to a political trick? And besides that, 300 concubines that I guess are just for your enjoyment. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Stunning verse here. For Solomon went after, hear that, went after, chased after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And when you hear that, you're like, okay, well, what is that? Okay, great. He he went after Ashtoreth and Milcom. Oh, hold on a minute. Ashtoreth was a goddess of the Sidonians. She was a goddess of sexual love and warfare, which is an odd combination for a goddess. But you know how you worshipped her? You went to the temple, you went to their shrines, and you engaged cult prostitutes. That's how you worshipped her. And to make matters worse, think about this. She's the goddess of erotic love and warfare. Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. I think he's okay over here. And the god of war, he's a, he's a king that is 
His whole kingdom is defined by a period of peace where there is no war. So he's just chasing the appetite. I don't even need this God, but I'm giving myself away. And Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, we believe that Milcom was the, was the national God of the Ammonites who gave them victory. And so on one hill, you have the temple of the holy God. And across the Kidron Valley, as we'll see over on the Mount of Olives, Solomon's building shrines to this God. And so everything that happens to Solomon, all the good things, all the wealth, all the success, everything else, who do you attribute glory to? If Yahweh was his only God, then it's clearly Yahweh. But who, I mean, I'll, I'll give glory to Milcom, maybe Ashtoreth. What a betrayal of the God who had blessed him so richly. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow after the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built with his own money a high place for Shamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites. You know what defines these two gods that have to do with fertility? Do you know how you worshipped him? You sacrificed your children in fires. Child sacrifice. Holy cow. And we look at Solomon and we go, yeah, we would never do that. We'd never have a thousand women, right? Who has the time? But think about this. In our culture, 64% of Christian men in the church Admit to a struggle with pornography. What is that? It means my wife is not enough for me. I'm going to exploit other women and take from them things that are only meant for their husbands. We're not better. Oh my goodness. Solomon would establish shrines for child sacrifice just to make political gains? We would never do that in our culture, would we? Sacrifice children for political gain? No. We would never do that. You go to Tel Gezer, which is one of the places that Solomon built the city, and you find these standing stones that are monuments to these gods of child sacrifice. And around the bases of these stones, they found the remains of little children burned Scorched bones, like this this is real. Solomon paid for the worship of this kind of stuff. And yet my steadfast love shall not depart from him. Feel okay about that now? He's my Jedediah. This is one of the jars that they found. Sorry, this is intense, but this is one of the burial jars. They put together one of the infants that had been sacrificed. Those are the bones. These are real things. Solomon, wicked to the bone at the end of his life. What happened to you? God blessed him. That's what happened. And he decided that every bit of God's blessing existed for me. My treaties, my blessing, my money, my power, my fame, my name, my palace, me. 
Oh, what an awful eulogy this is to give. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after these other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. And therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. You know, if the story ended in chapter 11, we would be going, what happened to this guy? One of the beautiful things is that Solomon writes three books of the scriptures. He writes the Proverbs. He writes the Song of Solomon, my goodness, of this amazing love affair, this wholesome, beautiful love affair that Solomon never experienced in his life, but he could only dream of that kind of love. It can only be satisfied by Christ. And he writes another book called Ecclesiastes. And the whole point of Ecclesiastes is it is a book, a warning sign to us that says this, a life that's, that has unrivaled wealth and wisdom and fame and projects and power and relationships and you name it, that doesn't have God at the center is utterly empty. Don't do what I have done. Don't chase after this stuff. It will waste your life. Instead, devote your life and all of your blessings to the Lord. That is how you live a life that's rich. And the passage goes on and says, yet, oh, I love that word, yet. There's still hope. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do this, stripping the kingdom from you in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe, Judah, to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of the Jerusalem that I have chosen. And I want you to stop there And I want you to imagine all this wickedness mounting up in front of the Lord. My steadfast love will not depart from you, Solomon. You are my Jedidiah. And when God gives the reason why he is going to show mercy on Solomon, he says, yet for the sake of David, your father, I won't do it in your lifetime. You know, that's our story. Yet for the sake of a king far greater than you, I'm going to show you mercy. We come before the Lord with all these disappointments and shame and guilt, and they're just piling up as our life goes along. And someday we're going to have to stand before him, and he's going to evaluate our life. Yet for the sake of a far greater king, mercy, blessing. All your sins wiped away. You are the Lord's Jedediah. And if you have put your hope in him, then his steadfast love will not depart from you. No matter how many times you fail, no matter how far you stray, for the sake of a greater 
king, his love will not depart from you. Can you imagine what Solomon's life would have been like if he clung to the Lord and gave all of his life for his sake? Well, it would look a lot more like our messianic king, our savior, who had infinite wealth that made Solomon look like a pauper in heaven. And he left it all. He came into the world and experienced homelessness. Why? Because he's on a mission for you. He chases after the powerless and the broken. He doesn't come to put his people into forced labor. He comes to free them from slavery. All sorts of slavery. He's a God of liberty. And he doesn't come to his inner circle and say, here's a massive amount of blessing. Now be fat and happy. He comes to his inner circle and says, I'm overwhelming you with blessing so that you can take those blessings and go to the far off. Stretch my name. Take them to reach the far off and the less fortunate. He does not drink from cups of gold. On the night before he's hung on a cross, he begs the Lord, let this cup pass from me. Do you want to know the cup Jesus drinks from? It's the cup of God's wrath. The cup that belonged to me. And Jesus said, no, I'm a far greater king, mine. And he drank the wrath reserved for me till it was bone dry and there was nothing left. Why? Because his steadfast love will not depart from me. I'm his beloved. You are his beloved. And he offers, when the people come to him for a blessing, he doesn't say pony up. He says, I got the cost. I'll pay it all. Here is your salvation, your identity as a son or a daughter of the king, free. It's yours. Value it. Treasure it. He's not a God that's looking for cheap moments like Ashtoreth. He's a God who wants your hand in marriage forever. He's not a God over here on this hill that requires you to sacrifice your children. My goodness. He's a God who looks at you and says, I love you so much. I will sacrifice my son for you. Do you know how loved you are? You're a royal priesthood. You are sons and daughters of the king. Which kingdom looks better? Which of those two eulogies would you want for your life? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much. You are so wonderful. I'm so grateful that you're our savior, that you come into this world and you do things that we don't expect. You come for poverty. You come and embrace loneliness. You suffer like we suffer. And 
and to way greater extremes. You give us the liberty of knowing that we can never earn our salvation. We'll never be good enough. We come polluted and piled with our sins. And yet, because of what you did on the cross, you look at us and say, my steadfast love will never depart from you. You are so good. And so we come before you this morning and we give you praise and honor and glory. And we ask that as we sit around the table of the king this morning, that you would give us hearts that want to take this kingdom to pour all the blessings that you given to us out for the sake of spreading the news of this great kingdom far and wide in our world today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.